Everybody, welcome into a special edition of the Daily Energy News Beat Stand Up here on this gorgeous Friday, May 5th, 2023. As always, I'm your humble correspondent, Michael Tanner, coming to you from an undisclosed location here in Dallas, Texas, bringing you our weekly recap. Man, we had a jam packed show this week. We pretty much had the entire gamut of stories between. JP Morgan buying First Republic, crude oil prices tumbling from $76 all the way down to uh, where we're currently trading about $69. Um, Lots of stuff going on in the EV markets. We've got a great weekly recap. Appreciate the team for putting this together. As always, guys, these stories are available via the world's greatest website, www.energynewsbeat.com. Let's go ahead and get to it, though. Let's tee them up. Financing the energy transition. Follow the money. We need a plan to provide the lowest kilowatt per hour along the path. The cost of moving the energy sector toward net zero is huge, but new research reveals that companies are increasingly prepared to invest and funding is increasingly available. Let's find out those sectors, Michael. Coming around the corner. What are energy companies, alloc- where are energy companies out allocating capital? of energy companies are investing in energy transition initiatives. 28% now is in uh, returns to investors and shareholders. It used to be 11%. Wow. All right. Capital investments in traditional businesses in oil and gas, Michael. This is critical. It used to be two years ago. 32%. Now it's down to 20%. And three years, three, two years ago, Michael, you and I had on our show, we could pull the tape. Uh, We needed trillions of dollars just to meet uh, the decline curves. If demand uh, just remained flat, the IEA, the International Energy Association uh, Agency said just recently, two weeks ago, that energy demand will remain constant for a while. The International Energy Crime Syndicate, you mean? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll we'll leave my true thoughts alone on that in the E and the EU. I mean, excuse me, the um, yeah, the uh, the UN, yeah, the yeah, the EACC, yeah, and the uh, uh, UN. <laughs> okay, uh, how will they fund this? Uh, how will energy companies finance their energy transition initiatives? Private equity, forty percent, existing balance sheet, or Michael, I'm assuming this would be free cash flow, thirty-two percent. Mm. Equity capital markets, twenty-nine percent. Data capital markets, twenty. Debt capital markets, debt. Oh, thank you, thank you, uh, old Moses, me, friends. Bank loans, nineteen percent. Export credit agency, 40%. Hey, I went to OSU, but that is a lot more than 100%. I know. I was going to, I was asking the same thing. I was like, that seems like, uh, (laughs) is this printing money? I got to go do some research. This is, this is, this is how you start inflation. This has got to be printing money. I I think there's two things, Stu. I think it's clear. (laughs) I think it's clear. I think the, 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 the bigger shift is this. You mentioned it in the big summit. Where are energy companies allocating capital? Returns to investors and shareholders up from 11 to 28% in capital investment in traditional businesses down about the same amount, 32 to 20. 
So it's just a flip. People are saying, okay, instead of spending all of this money in putting it into the ground, just give it back to me. Because think about it, the track record of oil and gas spending capital from 2012 to 2020 to 2018 was terrible. And it's still kind of is terrible. Right. Drilling's a tough business. You know, actually spending capital and spending it wisely is a tough business. So I'm not surprised that it's flipped. I think what, you know, this whole 42% investing in the energy transition, are we sure about that? Like define energy transition. Like, are we talking about like- I got to find out if it includes nuclear and natural gas now, because yeah, I mean, if it is these, this, this article is then going green. Yeah. uh, You know, so funny article. I I was like, okay, if you put peel out the uh, coming from the bank balance sheet, that might make a little good, but who knows? Okay. I got to go do some research on that article. Sorry about that. Market rally shakeout may be bullish, uh, may be a bullish signal. JP Morgan eyes first Republic after FDIC takeover. Michael, this concerns me a bunch. The FDIC seen taking over first Republic uh, banking giants, including JP Morgan Chase and PNC Financial Services are looking to buy first Republic following a government seizure. The Wall Street Journal reported Friday night, citing sources. The FDIC asked for initial bids by Sunday. Bloomberg reported on Sunday after, I was going to say gouging, but gauging initial interest. Bank of America is mulling it. Michael, this is systemic of an overall problem. And as the government keeps bailing out banks, it's going to be an issue. What are your thoughts? Well, this comes back to the issue of these larger banks. Like, like I, I think it's important to note that JP Morgan would need a regulatory waiver to buy First Republic. So they clearly think they're going to get the waiver if they're all right. spending. If they're, you know, I mean, they, they, they got their whole team working on I mean, what's kind of funny is JP Morgan does MA for other companies. Imagine being on the MA deal team for right. JP Morgan. That's got to be an interesting deal team. Um, I'd love to get, I'd love to hear some stories about that. Not for dealing, um, but. The, where this is all going to lead is again, Bank of America is among some of the banks buying first look. It's much like in the oil and gas business, you're seeing massive consolidation because of just the way the struck the equity and debt markets are structured. It favors big versus right. small. I think that's what you're going to see happen in the banking industry. You're going to you're going to see all of these regional banks get swallowed up by you know much larger regional banks, and then those larger regional banks will get swallowed up eventually by J.P. Morgan, and you'll have you know ten to twenty banks throughout the country. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Probably on average, a bad thing. There may be some good things about it. You don't need to worry about, you know, one one of the advantages of having just huge banks is liquidity. You don't have to worry about a run on deposits. The FDIC then can worry about other different things. Now, having all of you having all of your deposits in one bank can also lead to massive, you know, we, we already think Wall Street has too much power and too much control over our lives. Imagine if if JP Morgan had all the power. Now, I like if yeah. now, I think the thing to be careful of is in this case. Yes, I actually you know, if I'm going to put my my money anywhere, it's going to be in J.P. Morgan, mainly based off what Jamie Dimon has said regarding the energy transition and his stance on oil and gas. He was one of the right. few CEOs that sat up in front of Congress and said moving and getting off oil and gas would be the road to hell. I love he, that did. he said that. That's a yes. quote directly from him. Now, what happens when a new CEO takes over and doesn't believe that? 
What happened? Right. The problem with centralization is you're counting on the people in charge. You may like the people in charge now, but do we like, would we, will we like them going forward? So there has to be a balance. We have to figure out a way to ride this ship, but it may, JP Morgan may be the only company that could buy this. So I'll be interested to see what happens, but I think that's what's going to happen. Consolidation yeah. among banks and we'll be generally worse off because of it. I will give you a uh, great, great feedback, Michael. Uh, one small thing in, in you, you kind of uh, said, what do you think uh, about more big banks? It would be easier for the government to control the rollout of the Hamilton project, which is the digital currency, which is the end of financial freedom for the U.S. So that to me is even more scary on that part. Sorry. Oh, you're good. The Hamilton project. Um, but, yeah. uh, but no, you know, obviously first Republic, they're in trouble, their stocks down, you know, it, it's basically down you know, over a hundred percent. You've got huge Q quarter one deposit outflows. You know, <laughs> there was an attempt to, to quasi rescue it, but it, the FDIC came in and just said, Nope, we're putting you up for bid right now. Someone will buy it. They won't necessarily um, have to go into receivership. So I think that'll be convenient for everybody, but um, we'll see. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in a regional bank right now. Uh, no energy better positioned for any kind of recession analyst says, Michael, uh, I'm seeing this all over the place. Investors are calling and asking, and they're saying things like what in the world do we do? It's energy, baby. You know, it's all about energy. And Chevron, Exxon post robust Q1 profits despite falling gas. They're still got the profits. And for the ones that are good management, good numbers, like you and I have always said, they're good investments. Um, there's a couple quotes in here that are just fabulous. Roger Reed says, always a tough question to answer for the company or for us. So I think if you look at what's typically made M&A work in this space, it's more often occurred during a time of stress, meaning low commodity prices or other uh, extraneous event that for reasons creates mergers. It doesn't mean it can't happen. We just would be saying watch for those moments as opposed to just waking up one day and seeing everything. You know, what this is saying is uh, last year, the Dow uh, Occidental was number one on the Dow on their uh, Dow exchange. So when you sit back and take a look, Oxy number one, you know, that's only one investment. You have 50% of the EMP operators in the U.S. Uh, are privately held. They're good investments as well. But you have real estate, Michael, coming around the corner. Um, I was watching Maria Bartolomo this morning and the real estate in San Francisco and um, New York, I think it was 48% is now vacant of commercial space. There is going to be a lot of commercial people looking to get out. So what you're going to see is a run on minerals. You're going to see a run on things with passive income. Anyway, I'm sorry for rolling on that, but I thought this was incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he accurately points out, and I thought, you know, um, Roger Reed, he's a Wells Fargo analyst, so think think what you want about about their ability to predict. But I think he 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 poses what I think is the right way to think about an Exxon Mobil from X, you know, a a perspective of M and A, because really what they're talking about is. You know, while all these other things are crashing, where possibly should companies be looking at in terms of energy M&A? Well, 
when you're looking for an acquisition, are you looking for future drilling sites or more of a decarbonization play, which I think is key. There's two driving forces that are going to keep energy high. Obviously, exactly. commodity prices, and that goes into the future drilling locations, but then also the decarbonization for all the stuff that's going on in the Inflation Reduction Act. Who says there's not an Inflation Reduction Act too? And all of a sudden, CCUS is thrown in there. Um, it, here's the thing. There's absolutely zero reason to fight the clowns. And, you know, fighting the clown, great, let them do it. Go make some money. And then you know, punch them in the nose or squeak their nose or squeak the horn later and just go put your money where you can make money. And it's in natural gas, nuclear, uh, modular nuclear. Watch. All you got to do is watch out for yourself. Louisiana, oil and gas still has a place in the future of energy. Michael, this is a great story. Uh, Louisiana is uh, positioned to have opportunity to capitalize on changing global market demand and lead in the future of energy by bringing online new advancements in the industry, such as carbon capture and storage, CCUS uh, and utilization. I want to throw that in there. Blue and green hydrogen and renewable diesel. Uh, Michael, there's about 16 really nice big projects going on in Louisiana. And I respect the leadership because they are doing renewables. They are doing oil and gas. Louisiana is home to the Haynesville um, uh, uh, formation and lots of natural gas. You've got so much going to the Gulf that they have a uh, just a huge amount of good things going on. Besides having Tyrus off of uh, Gutfeld, there. I mean, Gutfeld's a rock star and uh, his ratings are insane. I saw he's the number one late night host. Oh, absolutely. And and I would like to have uh, uh, Gutfeld and uh, Tyrus and Kat on our podcast if they're ever listening. So just want to throw I'm, that sure, out. I'm sure they're listening. I'm sure they're getting their editors on it right away. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, that anyway, I hats off to Louisiana. Absolutely a positive uh, article. Uh, they've got $18 billion in projects announced for capture core, carbon capture, renewable biofuels, blue and green production of hydrogen and ammonia, while they're doing all of the normal oil and gas in the Haynesville. Wonderful way to do it. So Yeah, and they're... They're taking the I mean, I think the, the the infrastructure and investment in the CCUS really will be the bridge between the old and the new if this is where yes. things are going regardless. I mean, if we're going to if scope one emissions are going away, CCUS is the quickest way to do that. So I think this is smart overall in terms of a strategic play. Right. And hey, aren't you proud of me? I didn't pick a Debbie Downer or a Karen Downer story. Uh, you know, I got you one in there, man. That was great. That was great. Ford loses nearly $60,000 for every electric vehicle sold. Is that a good business sustainable model? No, that doesn't add up. Uh, no. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I was like, the car maker was on a roll at the time. Let's see here. Uh, it was planning on starting a production of the F-150 Lightning, the electric version of the iconic best-selling 150. Uh, you and I have already talked about this. Uh, let me get into the losses here. It appears that the Ford Model E recorded a loss before interest and taxes of $700 million. This is $100 million more than the fourth quarter of 2022. The margins are also in the red. The EBIT earnings before interest and taxes 
uh, which allows investors to assess the true cost of the activity is negative a hundred and two point one. And this is more than twice as much as fourth quarter in 2022, in which the EBIT margin was negative 40 percent. Um, on the revenue side, it amounted to $700 million for the first three months of the year. It's less than half of the $1.6 billion in revenue generated by the Ford Model E in the last quarter of 2022. We're seeing some real trends there, Michael. People are not wanting to buy electric. Yeah, I mean they 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 specifically mention, you know, one of the 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 third headlines here is gas cars are fine. I mean, they're not necessarily seeing a dip in sales across their non-electric fleet, which I think is is interesting and probably feeds into what, you know, really the other two stories you've got lined up, which is specifically more and more Americans don't want electric cars, which has been a theme of this earnings season. I mean, remember, we've just gone through 158 Companies release their earnings. More are coming on the way. We're being able to dive in and really, in a full year of all of these companies doing EVs, been able to sort of look behind the glass and see a little bit into their balance right. sheet. It's not good. No. And uh, Siemens uh, lost $1.7 billion in their wind farm division. Yeah. I want. Oh. Okay. I think, and this is just my personal opinion on this before I go to the next story, which is related to this story. And that is the infrastructure bill uh, actually, I think, has caused part of the problem, Michael, from the standpoint that uh, the Biden administration goes, OK, look, tax credits. No tax credits. No, you get no you get no tax credits for you. Uh, I mean, they're just like they're, they're the, the infrastructure bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. Both of them are porculous, but it was. The, yeah, because I was going to say there was the porculous bill. Was before the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act had the uh, big tax savings in the car, and, and wasn't the wasn't the porculous bills what it was? It's dubbed now, but wasn't it called like Build Back Better? Or oh something? yeah, like there was yeah, some yeah, it, weird it, phrase. It, 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 you know, you just can't buy this kind of entertainment. Next story here, man. More and more Americans don't want electric cars. Um, Battery power cars seem like the next best thing, but growing Americans aren't ready to give up internal combustion. We live in too big of an area, Michael. I I travel from state to state. Top line metrics on overall EV market share, availability, affordability have been on a long term upward trend. The market research firm said, but beneath those headline numbers, we are starting to see some consumer behaviors that suggest a possible bifurcation of the automotive um, marketplace. Let me put it to you this way. People are going to be able to have transportation in everywhere but California and New York. If you want to live and own a car, you can be anywhere in the U.S. except in those cities or even Chicago. I mean, that's just the way that they're planning on doing it, Michael. Yeah, I think there's there's a few hurdles specifically on like the user acceptance side that I think this article points out. One, respondents in this you know survey were very concerned about their performance in extreme temperatures. I think that's the first thing. Like you know, and no one in Colorado is people in Colorado. Yes, they have a Tesla, but they're not taking it to the mountains. No, and that's their second car. Yes, exactly. It's like. EVs are people's second car. The when the discussion shifts from second car to primary car, you maybe have you might have me. 
But I that's but that's a long way away. This is an interesting thing. Obviously, the the, the majority of boomers and pre-boomers aren't considering EVs. That's clear by these stats. This is interesting. 33% of Gen Z told this survey that they were either somewhat unlikely or very unlikely. Oh, that, that's a that's not an insignificant portion of the population. No. In Gen, no less. I was surprised by that number, but I'll tell you what, I mean, you sit back and take a look at me. Uh, why? Cause I can buy a $15,000 used car and be just as happy and think about the difference between that. That buys a lot of gas. $80,000 buys a lot of gasoline. Yeah. I mean, me and you have talked about this. It would be fun to get corporate podcast Teslas, but that's a second vehicle. That goes back to your original comment. It's a second vehicle in most applications. There are very few applications, in my opinion, unless right. you live in like a dry climate, like Cal- like Southern California, and you don't necessarily have a long commute, is going to probably be, you could be your primary car. But for the vast majority of Americans, it can't right. happen. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in and sticking with us each and every week. Um, you guys are definitely the backbone of this show. Uh, for Stuart Turley and Michael Tanner, guys, we will see you Monday. Stay strong this weekend. Stay strong this weekend.